be watching you. Yeah, it's a creepy song, really. It, it's it's about stalking somebody. I, I think so. But it's still the anthem for every CRNA in America. Okay, every breath you take. So welcome back. You gotta have humor if you're gonna hang out with Dr. D. To Dr. D's Pet the Pharmacology Muddy Concepts. And this week, we are going to talk about... Hold your breath. Hold your breath. Wait for it. Yes, the respiratory system. We're going to talk about oxygenation and ventilation. So, you know what to do. That's right. Grab your blankie. Pop the corn. Grab a soda. Take a walk with your head. Just walk the dog. Whatever it is that you do. But kick back and get ready to... Breathe and learn. Breathe and learn. All right. Before we really get into the respiratory system, the diseases that that are associated with it and how to treat it, let's talk a little bit about the difference between oxygenation and ventilation. This is going to be very important next semester that you understand the difference. The main difference between oxygenation and ventilation is that oxygenation refers to taking up oxygen from air by the red blood cells, whereas ventilation refers to the provision of fresh air into the lungs. Another difference is oxygenation increases the partial pressure of oxygen, while ventilation reduces the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. Oxygenation also occurs at the arterioles inside the lungs, while ventilation occurs through inhaling and exhaling. So oxygenation and ventilation are two physiological processes for gas exchange. So what is it about oxygenation? We know it's the the physiological process that adds oxygen to our body system, right? It occurs in the lungs. But we need to know a little more. We elegant alveoli of the lungs are surrounded by this network of blood capillaries. During inhalation, the alveoli are filled with fresh air and therefore the red blood cells are very oxygen hungry and the blood capillaries take up the oxygen from the air and this basically occurs through simple diffusion high to low high to low and then furthermore the partial pressure of oxygen is high in the air where the pressure is low in the blood and that then allows the oxygen from the air to diffuse into the blood. The red blood cells also transport this oxygen into the tissues, right? Again, the partial pressure of oxygen in the tissues is low, but the partial pressure is high in the blood, had a low. Therefore, oxygen just simply diffuses from the blood into the tissue. Ultimately, this oxygen serves as a final 
electron acceptor of the oxidative phosphorylation process in cellular respiration. Da, 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 da. I would definitely watch that cellular respiration video. So what is ventilation? Ventilation is the exchange of air between the lungs and the atmosphere. Generally, it occurs through inhalation and exhalation of the lungs. Inhalation is taking air into the lungs while exhalation is getting rid of it, liberating it from the lungs. The main importance of ventilation is to reduce the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. It mainly occurs through exhalation, right? We breathe out that, that CO2. That's the problem with our COPD patients. They can't get rid of it. Basically, the partial pressure of CO2 is high in the blood and the capillaries, which draw blood into the lungs. However, the partial pressure of CO2 is low in the air. High to low, high to low. So what does that mean? Carbon dioxide diffuses from the blood to the air. On the other hand, inhalation facilitates oxygenation. All right. So just remember, oxygen increases the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, while ventilation reduces the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. Oxygenation occurs with the taking up of oxygen from the air by the red blood cells. And ventilation occurs through inhalation and exhalation. We also need to talk about compliance. And I'm, when I say that, I'm not talking about adherence or compliant patient. I'm talking about lung compliance. So lung compliance also can be called pulmonary compliance is the ability of the lungs to stretch and expand. It's defined by the relativity of the change in volume to the change in pressure. This is an important measure when we're doing respiratory function and a consistent change in the level of compliance often lets us know that there is a presence of disease in the lungs. Pulmonary compliance is the greatest when the volume of the lungs is at a moderate level. In basic terms, lung compliance is the ability of the lung tissue in the alveoli, remember those alveoli, those small sacs in the lung where gas exchange takes place to actually expand when we're inhaling. You're going to hear about two types of compliance that are measured, static and dynamic. Static compliance is the measurement when the lungs aren't moving at all. And dynamic compliance is the measurement of the lungs when they're in motion. So at the end of inspiration and expiration. If a person were to fill the lungs with pressure and then not move it, the pressure would eventually decrease. This is the static compliance measurement. The dynamic compliance is measured by dividing the tidal volume, the average volume of air in one breath cycle by the difference between the pressure of the lungs at full 
inspiration and full expiration. Static compliance is always a higher value than dynamic. Why is it important? Lung compliance can often tell us there's a problem in the lungs. A decreased compliance might let us know that there's like fibrosis, which is the formation of excess tissue, right? So it's going to inhibit movement and gas exchange. Um, Increased compliance can indicate a state of disease where there's a degeneration of tissue that causes the lungs to have to work harder to expand, such as emphysema. With emphysema, the tissue damage means that it is easier to inhale as there is less resistance, but it is much harder to exhale. Another very important component that contributes to compliance is pulmonary surfactant. Okay, this, I kind of like to think of this as like bubbles. You know, if you have dish soap and you have the bubbles on the top, a surfactant is a substance that decreases surface tension. And in the case of the lungs, there is a thin watery liquid that coats these alveoli. And this liquid has a very high surface tension. And without surfactant, the surface tension would cause the alveoli to collapse. Oh, that must not be good. And no, it is not. There are cases of lung compliance pathology caused by problems with surfactant. We have our our infant respiratory distress or IRDS syndrome. This is like a congenital defect that is caused by lack of surfactant. Usually we see this in our preemie babies born between 26 and 32 weeks of age. Um, This can lead to like severe pulmonary and cardiac uh, issues. Um, Due to the decreased surfactant, these, these children have a really bad time breathing. But if it's caught in time, we can treat it. So that is the topic of compliance, surfactant, important. Well, what do we know? So far, we know that all cells need oxygen, O's, to live, grow, breathe, perform, to do their specific jobs. And this oxygen comes from the air that we breathe. Air with oxygen enters the nose, the mouth, moves through the airs or the trachea, bronchi, bronchioles into air sacs located in the lungs. These air sacs are called alveoli and they're the site where oxygen from the air moves into the blood so that it can be carried to all the tissues and organs. And room air oxygen percentage is 21%. The waste gas created in the tissues, what's that called? Mm -hmm. Carbon dioxide, CO2, moves from the blood into the alveoli so that it can be exhaled. The major health problems of the respiratory system are those that narrow the airways, such as asthma, chronic bronchitis, um, or diseases that actually just destroy 
the alveoli, such as emphysema. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, is a respiratory disorder that we're going to talk about, and it's actually a combination of chronic bronchitis and emphysema. We are going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of the lungs, and then get into asthma, COPD, and the drug therapy related to these disease processes. So welcome to week six. Take a breath. Let's get started. All right, so let's talk about the lungs. Normal anatomy of the lungs include large airways and smaller airways that lead to these alveoli. Now, when I think of the alveoli, I think of like bundles of grapes on a branch, okay? Um, it's important for the airways to remain open for get good airflow to and from the alveoli because that is where the oxygen and the carbon dioxide are exchanged. The open center of the hollow part of the airway is called the lumen and there's going to be different health problems that can affect the lumen in a, in a variety of ways like makes it smaller that's the big thing and sometimes can even completely close it. That's an alert. The middle can be blocked by thick mucus and other substances, and also the mucous membranes that lining of the tube can swell when it's inflamed, and then that blocks off the open area. One of the layers around the tubes is made up of smooth muscle, and if this smooth muscle constricts tightly, the center of the tube can be narrowed or even closed, and this is called bronchoconstriction. Bronchoconstriction. And bronchoconstriction, which is going to cause wheezing, can cause more bronchoconstriction. That can lead to bronchospasm, and that can lead to death. So... We want to know when we're getting in trouble, if we have any kind of airway disease, especially a reactive airway disease like asthma or COPD. So a common method to measure airway function is peak expiratory rate flow or PERF. And it is the fastest airflow rate reached at any given time during exhalation and measures how well the patient can exhale or blow out of their mouth. PERF is measured by blowing into this like handheld meter during exhalation. It indicates whether the airways are functioning properly or if they are narrowing or they're narrowed. The normal range for PERF is established by age, size, gender. They have like their best, their personal best. A decrease in PERF of 15% to 20% below the expected value for that person um, means that the airways are narrowed. And when the PERF value drops below 50%, the patient is in the red zone, the danger zone, the low airflow in and out zone. You know where that's going. So let's talk about asthma. 
Asthma is a problem of the airway that causes obstruction. This is caused by constriction of the bronchial smooth muscle that surrounds the airways and by inflammation of the airways. Characteristics of asthma is it occurs in episodes or attacks, and between the attacks, the airways are open, and so the problem is intermittent and reversible. It is reversible. Only the airways are affected, not the alveoli. Two problems do occur that narrow the airways, and we just talked about that bronchoconstriction. This is because of smooth muscle tightening and inflammation. Bronchoconstriction blocks the airways from the outside of the airway, right? Like squeezing down on that airway. And inflammation causes swelling of the mucous membranes. And that is starting, will then start to obstruct the lumen or the inside of the airways. This problem is worse when mucus plugs are formed. Airway inflammation also can trigger bronchoconstriction, so the airways are blocked by two processes at the same time. Inflammation of the mucous membranes that line the airways is also a key event in triggering an asthma attack. It usually occurs in response to the presence of an allergen. There's a trigger, such as an irritant um, like cold air, dry air, fine particles in the air, microorganisms, even medications like aspirin. Histamine and leukotrienes are released into the mucous membranes. When this happens, the blood vessels dilate, the tissues swell, and the mucus increases. These same factors may also cause the smooth muscles around or the outside of the airways to actually tighten and constrict more. A patient with mild to moderate asthma has no, can have no symptoms between asthma attacks, um, but if they do have symptoms, symptoms of an acute asthma attack are increased respiratory rate and a wheeze, right? A wheeze is that squeaky, um, snore-like sound made when air moves through the narrowed airways. At first, the wheeze is heard only when the patient exhales. As the airways continue to narrow, the wheezing can also be heard when the patient inhales. With inflammation, the patient also will have increased coughing. As breathing becomes less effective, blood oxygen levels decrease, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide levels increase, and if the asthma attack gets too severe, um, the oxygen levels become too low, the patient can die. So what can we do, nurses, to prevent that from happening? So all right, nurses, what do you want to do? How are you going to check? What do you expect? Well, I'm going to put an O2 saturation pulse ox on them, right? Are you? I am. I'm expecting between 95 and 100 in most individuals with asthma and that do not have chronic lung disease. Um, but common changes that I, you're going to see during an asthma attack is it's going to be decreased. 
perhaps we'll have them do their peak expiratory uh, rate of flow or PERF. We want that to be at least 95% of the expected value for their size, gender, and age. The common changes during an asthma attack is they're going to be less than 80%. Oh, that's like an NCLEX thing. Of the expected value for the size, gender, and age. If they are so bad, and we suspect they are acidotic, we are going to want some ABGs. So your PAO2, all right, so this is your oxygenation or your O2. We'd like to see that between 95 and 100 millimeters of mercury in asthmatics. We'll see that as decreased. That should basically, in an asthma patient that doesn't have chronic lung disease, would match your O2 sat. Your PaCO2, so this is your CO2. This is, we'd like to see this between 35 and 45, but definitely less than 45. Anything more than that, it's increased means they are not getting rid of CO2. They are holding on to it. Bicarb. Whoop, remember your party years, 22 to 24 milliequivalents per liter. Um, that usually will remain normal during an asthma attack. And your pH, which should be 7.35 to 7.45. In the beginning, it will be increased. This is early. And then late it will be decreased. So those are the kind of labs we're going to be looked at. If we they are bringing up any kind of mucus, we might actually want a chest x-ray. All right, so let's go on and talk a little bit about COPD. And then you're going to see that the medications that we talk about actually are pretty much the same for these diseases, even though the pathophysiology is completely different. Now let's chat about COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a combination of chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Chronic bronchitis is a persistent inflammation of the airways. The mucous membranes of the airways are swollen and the mucus producing cells enlarge. I think those are goblet cells. This creates large amounts of thick, sticky mucus that narrow the airways. As a result, the air that moves in and out of the lungs, it becomes more difficult. Emphysema is a problem in which the normal elastic tissue in the alveoli becomes loose and flabby. Because exhalation depends on recoil or elasticity of the alveoli, a loss of good elastic tissue makes moving air out of the lungs extremely difficult. Both chronic bronchitis and emphysema are progressive and become worse with time. There's no cure that exists for either, and the most common cause is cigarette smoking. COPD is very similar to asthma in terms of airway blockage. However, the symptoms of COPD never go away completely, even with drug therapy. The alveoli are damaged in the COPD, but, in, but that's not true in the asthmatic. And the thick, stick, sticky mucus is continuously produced in the patient with COPD. So knowing about those really 
dark, warm, moist lungs with mucus, what do you think most of these patients eventually die from? If you said infection, you are right because that is the perfect environment for infection. So you can bet that in these patients, all this coughing and huffing and puffing and breathing and all this is very, very, um, we used to call it um, pulmonary toilet, you know. All right, so just generally types of drugs for asthma and COPD. When asthma is well controlled, the airway narrowing is temporary and reversible. With poor control, attacks become worse. They happen more often. They can become so severe, yes, that we have patients that die during an attack. We know that's from lack of oxygen. The goals of drug therapy for asthma are to improve airflow, reduce symptoms, and prevent asthma attacks. The drugs used to help prevent airway closure from asthma comes from several categories, and that's going to depend on the exact problem that is triggering the airways to narrow. Drug therapy for asthma in adults and children is based on the disease severity. And remember, y'all, so many kids have asthma and kids need oxygen. They will cardiac arrest from lack of oxygen. Most of the time you give them oxygen, they'll spring right back. Children and oxygen, they get bradycardic and then they die when they don't have it. So very important. Some patients may need drug therapy with a rescue drug only during the asthma episode, while others need daily drugs. They need them to prevent them from having asthma attacks. The total therapy involves the use of drugs that makes the smooth muscle around the airways relax. We call those bronchodilators and anti-inflammatory drugs. Thus, some drugs reduce the attack severity or stop the attack. Those are the rescue drugs. Other drugs actually will just prevent the attack. We call those prevention or controller drugs. All right, nurses, so how are we gonna help these patients manage their symptoms? Because we know if we manage their symptoms um, that they will have less readmissions, less cost to healthcare, better quality of life for our patients. Well, the first thing we're gonna do is help them manage their symptoms by learning to assess them when they are becoming, they change before they become severe. And we're going to do that by teaching them how to use a peak flow meter. We're going to, we're going to actually have them measure their perf, their peak expiratory rate flow. So using the peak flow meter, we're going to measure how fast they're going to measure how fast that they can push air out of their lungs. They're going to blow as hard and as fast as they can. And this is called peak flow. The peak flow measures how open the airways are in the lungs. So the actual peak flow numbers drop very early, even before the patients began to feel bad. 
So this drop tells the asthmatic or tells the COPD or you maybe get worse and then they can adjust medications. So measuring the peak flow helps them learn um, also what causes or triggers the drop and also when to get emergency care. How do they use it? The first thing we have to do is have them use this peak flow twice a day for two weeks, two to three weeks. They want to do it, do it at the same time in the morning and in the early evening. We want to have them do the test before taking any of their inhalers or as instructed by their physician, of course. But the personal best usually is the highest number that they can perform over a two-week period. When? the asthmatic doesn't have any symptoms going on and the COPD or has very minimal symptoms. And that is their number, okay? Good control means you feel good and you, and you don't have any symptoms. Then what happens is they're gonna do, uh, when they do their other peak flow readings, they're going to always compare those readings to the personal best flow number. We wanna encourage them to do to have regular use of the peak flow meter because that's going to help them recognize early if there's decreases in airflow and then they and then we can guide them to their their asthma or their COPD action plan right but the big thing is we want them to keep a daily record and over time help them understand how this relates to helping them manage their symptoms. So the way the peak flow meter is actually um, like a traffic light system. So the action plan has three zones and we teach this a lot with asthma, the asthma action plan. There's the zone green, yellow, and red, just like a traffic light. The green zone is that the asthma or COPD is well controlled. So the peak flow is 80% to 100% of that personal best number. The yellow zone, oh, 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 caution, that means symptoms are worse. So the asthma is getting worse and the, um, the, the COPD is getting worse or it's poorly controlled. Peak flow is usually 50% to 80% of their personal best. Oof, yay. Red zone. Yep, your asthma or COPD is severe. It requires emergency care, 911, and the peak flow is going to be less than 50% of your personal best. So, green zone is just like the NCLEX, 80 above and better. Yellow zone, uh, you can kind of recover if you get any of those on a test. Red zone, you need resuscitation. Okay, so that's just kind of a good way to remember the zones and know that this is the way that we're going to actually help them manage their their um, symptoms if they're COPDers or actual prevention for our asthmatics. All right, so how are we going to treat these? All right, there are three main types of drugs for asthma treatment and prevention and COPD maintenance, and they include bronchodilators, anti-inflammatories and eucalytics. Let's start with the bronchodilators. Bronchodilators relax smooth muscle 
They have absolutely no effect on inflammation. So when a patient's asthma or chronic bronchitis is caused by both bronchoconstriction and inflammation, you're going to need at least two types of drug therapy. These drug types can include uh, our beta-2 adrogenergic agonists, mm-hmm, cholinergic antagonists, and our methylxanthines. Let's talk about how bronchodilators work. I bet this is going to be like a review for y'all. So bronchodilators, also known as beta-2, two lungs, adrogeneric agonists. And they bind to the beta-2 adrogeneric receptors and cause an increase in the productions of a substance that triggers pulmonary smooth muscle relaxation. And the name of the substance is called cyclic adenosine monophosphate, also known as CAMP, CAMP, little C, big AMP. Um, but short-acting beta-2 adrogeneric agonists, also known as SABAs, capital S-A-B-A, provide rapid but short-term relief. So they're called rescue drugs. They are the most useful when an asthma attack begins and when the patient is about to have maybe start an activity that that could induce an asthma attack. These drugs are also used for COPD patients um, when they are more breathless than usual. So they use these more to manage symptoms. When inhaled, the drug is delivered directly to the lungs and systemic effects are minimal. Now there still are some, but, and they can be overused, but they are minimal. Long-acting beta-2 adrogeneric agonists, also known as LABAs, L-A-B-A, they've all capitalized, work in the same way as the SABAs, but they need time to build up for an effect. Therefore, the LABAs are used to prevent an asthma attack because their effects last longer, but they have no real value when someone is like having a complete asthma attack. For COPD, these drugs are, are taken daily to maintain open airways. The patient with COPD may use a nebulizer and a mask for some of these drugs rather than the handheld inhaler. Now, what about the cholinergic antagonists or anticholinergic drugs? Mm. They block the parasympathetic nervous system. See, we were never going to get away from that. That's sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. This blockade allows a person's natural epinephrine and norepi to bind to smooth muscle receptors. And then what happens? Because those lungs are smooth muscle, bronchodilation results. These inhaled drugs also bind to mucous membrane receptors and decrease airway secretions. So just like the long-acting beta-2 adrogeneric agonists or LABAs, they are prevention drugs. So the cholinergic antagonist drugs are prevention drugs. They have to be taken on a daily basis in order to prevent asthma or reduce all the airway blocking that is happening in our COPD patients. Of the two, 
the COPD patient is more likely to be described a long-acting cholinergic antagonist. Remember, these drugs are used to prevent an attack but have really no value during an acute attack. So bronchodilators, anticholinergics, and these methylxanthines, what do you think the intended response is? Yet, yeah, I hope you said, well, pulmonary smooth muscle relaxation. The airways widen. It allows air to move more freely in and out of the alveoli. Wheezing decreases. Or you have full breath sounds and it disappears. Um, your perf, remember your personal best, increases compared with the readings taken right before the drug therapy. But there are side effects and adverse effects. So here's where we really have a differential between side effects and adverse effects. So bronchodilated side effects. So we know they're inhaled and they have few side effects unless the patient is using their inhaler heavily. Using an inhaler too often allows that drug to be absorbed through the mucous membranes in the mouth and throat and the respiratory linings, and then it enters the bloodstream. Once a drug enters the bloodstream, it can have systemic effects. Some of the systemic effects of bronchodilators include tachycardia, right? Increased blood pressure, a feeling of tremors or nervousness and difficulty sleeping. The inhaled drugs can also dry the mouth and throat and also have a bad, it leaves like a bad taste in the mouth. Anticholinergic agents can also cause specific side effects if, if they reach the bloodstream. These effects can include, oh my goodness, can't see, can't spit, can't pee, can't, mm-hmm, yes, urinary retention, blurred vision, eye pain, nausea, constipation, adverse effects. So some brands of inhaled bronchodilators contain preservatives, and these can cause minor to actually severe allergic reactions. When patients we're going to warn our patients to check with their prescriber if they have a rash, chest pain, if they're lightheaded, anything within a few minutes of using the inhaler. In addition, if a patient uses the inhaler more frequently than prescribed and enough drug reaches the bloodstream, like again, through the mucosa, through the respiratory linings, it can cause the blood vessels in the heart to constrict. Okay, that, you know, that's not good. Those are your coronary arteries. That's going to cause an imbalance in oxygen supply and demand. And if you have a cardiovascular patient, and many of our COPD patients are, this can cause angina or MI or heart attack. Adverse effects of the methylxanthines, knowing that now they are a chemically, they are structured like caffeine. Um, these are systemic drugs. So their side effects can be severe. So in addition to like tachycardia and high blood pressure, these drugs can actually cause serious and life-threatening heart arrhythmias uh, or dysrhythmias. Adverse effects are more likely to occur when they are given IV, but they also can occur when taken orally. All right, nurses, what are we going to do before we give that bronchodilator? A lot of patients have not used oral inhalers. Or if we give them a spacer, they may not know how to use it correctly. So we're going to have to teach them, okay? 
first we're going to ask them and if they say yes then we're going to ask them to demonstrate because one of the worst things that can happen is um, if you're not using the inhaler correctly it is going to be absorbed through the mouth so you are going to have more serious side effects but really it's not going to be hitting those lungs like it's supposed to all right so we definitely want to do that we want to listen to the lungs right always listen to the lungs before you give a bronchodilator I mean, this is just good information to turn to determine whether the drug's effective or not. Take vital signs, without a doubt, take vital signs. Um, always remember that these drugs can have some side effects, so that can cause a little tachycardia and an increase in blood pressure. Okay, but also remember that that methylxanthine, which um, can be PO or IV, IV, it will always be on the pump, by the way that they have severe central nervous system and cardiovascular adverse effects. So we're going to be watching them for possible seizures, watching their temperature, watching their mental status, having them on a monitor, um, checking their blood pressure, okay, checking their pulse. Um, and again, remember that that particular drug in the IV form would be given via a pump. Unfortunately, I have some bad news for y'all. One of the favorite things that the NCLEX likes to test you on is how to teach a patient to use an aerosol inhaler with a spacer and without a spacer. So I know it's in your books, absolutely is in your books. I know Kaplan goes over it and I hope you are doing your Kaplan FRTs by the way, but you need to know that there's like a preferred technique and an alternative technique, but you basically need to know um, how to instruct them. Open their mouth, place the mouthpiece one to two inches away. Um, as they begin to breathe in deeply, you're going to have them press down firmly on the canister of an inhaler. That is what you're teaching. And that one press down is one dose of the medication. And then we want them to continue to breathe in slowly and deeply, usually over three to five seconds. Then hold your breath for at least 10 seconds to allow the medication to reach deep into the lungs. And then we want to wait one minute between each puff. And if you are using more than one medication, so if you're given two or more inhalational drugs for asthma or COPD, we want to give the bronchodilator first and wait at least five minutes before given the second drug. You want, they have a reaction We need to know which one it is, right? So just know, I mean, that's just a quick go over, but you're gonna have to know how to teach that. All right, it's time for them to go home and we're gonna be sending them home with inhaled bronchodilators. And we need to teach them about the difference between controlling and preventing and how to use it correctly. Always, for whatever reason, our patient is carrying a short-acting beta agonist. We want to teach them to carry that with them at all times, all times. And make sure that they check when an inhaler is getting low. And a good way for to check that is just, you know, you can pull the inhaler out of the, the, um, the actual puffer part and you can put them in a bowl of water. So 
full inhalers will sink to the bottom. An empty inhaler floats on the top. So that's an easy way for them to do that. Um, teach patients that if the short actin inhaler is needed in like increasingly more often. So now they're using it instead of rescue, they're using it as maintenance. They need to be calling their prescriber because there, there could be other option therapies for those patients. Long-acting beta-adrogenic agonists or labis should be taken as prescribed even when, see here's the problem, but even when symptoms of asthma are not present because these drugs are used to prevent, right? Not stop an attack that's already started. So we really have to teach our patients um, not to use labas to rescue during an attack and to take them as prescribed because they are going to actually, well, the intended response is that we are going to decrease these asthma attacks. All right, now anti-inflammatory drugs. There are so many types of anti-inflammatory drugs, right? But the drug types used for asthma and COPD are corticosteroids. Now here we are building on our steroid medication card. Also mast cell stabilizers and leukotriene inhibitors. And we're going to talk about all three of those. So corticosteroids, they decrease the production of body chemicals that trigger inflammation. Inhaled corticosteroids can then prevent inflammation of the respiratory tract and reduce inflammation that's already started. Although inhaled corticosteroids do not cause relaxation of pulmonary smooth muscle, their presence enhances the effects of some bronchodilators. Mast cell stabilizers prevent the release of histamine and other chemicals that cause inflammation. When allergens bind to the mast cell receptors, the exact way the mast cell membranes are inhibited from opening, also called degranulating, is not um, known. Leukotriene inhibitors work in several ways to prevent an asthma episode and reduce the inflammation of chronic, like something like chronic bronchitis. Um, the Zyflo form of the leukotriene inhibitor actually prevents leukotriene production within the white blood cell. The singular um, leukotriene inhibitor blocks the leukotriene receptors on the inflammatory cells. And these, with these drugs, a person develops less inflammation in the respiratory um, tissues. None of the anti-inflammatory drugs induce bronchodilation. Okay, so just remember that this is a to cause a decrease in swelling of the pulmonary mucous membranes, right? We we hope for a reduction in pulmonary secretions. We're going to want those airway lumens to open, allow that air to move in and out. We hope to see a decrease in wheezing or want it to fully disappear with full breath sounds on both sides. And then we want them when they do their perk to be within the range of their personal best. So let's talk about side effects of corticosteroids. So side effects of inhaled anti-inflammatories are local and include a bad taste in the mouth, the mouth can get dry, and that can put them at an increased risk for oral infection. 
So side effects of the oral leukotriene inhibitors include headache and abdominal pain. We'll talk about why that is under adverse effects. So the adverse effects, when inhaled corticosteroids are used as prescribed, they usually have a pretty low risk for any adverse effects. However, when they're used heavily, again, they can be absorbed into the bloodstream and cause adrenal gland suppression, right? So now the adrenal gland is going to go to sleep, just like when you give a corticosteroid IV. Why is that a problem? Yes, you are right. So they go to sleep and then the inhaled corticosteroids reduce the local immune response. This is going to allow infections to recur. And now you should be thinking about, and they would not stop using them abruptly because then the adrenal glands can wake up and we can see an adrenal crisis. Remember, these are steroids. Leukotriene inhibitors may cause, and this is adverse effect, liver impairment, right? They can have allergic reactions that include hives, anaphylaxis, and again, these are rare things that we see. However, rare responses, we need to be aware of them, and that would probably be related to the abdominal pain for the leukotriene inhibitors. We need to be very cautious teaching them if they have that, they need to get a hold of us. That could be the liver involved. What to do before giving anti-inflammatory drugs, nurses? If we're talking about these drugs right here, I want to definitely look inside the patient's mouth, right? I want to make sure they don't already have an infection that's present. Um, the most common oral infection associated with these inhaled corticosteroids are fungal. It's known as thrush. And it appears white, cream-colored patches. Ugh, it can be pretty nasty looking, but very treatable on the roof of the mouth and the tongue. Many patients have never used an oral inhaler or spacer, just like I said before. So we want to, again, make sure they're using it correctly. If the patient's also going to have to use a bronchodilator, we want to tell them to give the bronchodilator first, wait at least five minutes before giving the inhaled anti-inflammatory. Think about that. By giving that bronchodilator first, what are we doing? We're allowing the bronchioles to be opened up at the widest capacity to get more drug down deeply into the respiratory tract. I mean, that would be more effective, right? And then what are we going to do after we give an anti-inflammatory drug? One of the big things is, and the NCLEX loves to um, ask you about, is assisting the patient to rinse their mouth out. Okay, mouthwash, remove the drug from the mouth. This is going to, number one, help reduce the bad taste in the mouth and that excessive dryness that can happen with these drugs. Regularly assess the patient taking the leukotriene inhibitor for signs and symptoms of that decreased liver function, okay? Um, we're going to be looking at them, look for constant fatigue. They get itchy skin when that liver isn't working. Jaundice of the skin or the scleria. What do we need to teach our patients about taking these anti-inflammatory drugs for respiratory problems? Yeah, because they're very effective in controlling or preventing asthma or reducing the inflammation of the chronic bronchioles in the COPD, um, there's going to be a lot of patients that are going to be on these medications.
So let's remind our patients to use their anti-inflammatory inhalers at least five minutes after using an inhaled bronchodilator. We want to teach patients to take the drug as prescribed even when symptoms of asthma are not present because these drugs are used to prevent an attack, not stop an attack that's already started. Tell patients to be careful about um, when about how the inhaler is used because of the risk for oral and respiratory infection that increases with increased use. In addition, more systemic side effects are going to likely occur the more they're using that. So we'll need to hear from them if they're using their inhalers more than prescribed. Tell patients using an inhaled drug that rinse in their mouth after using the drug um, can reduce the bad taste and dryness that happens. We want to have them do really um, excellent oral health care. Check their gums, their the back of their throat daily in the mirror. We, we want them to look for increased redness or the presence of any white or cream colored patches because that could actually indicate a fungal infection or thrush. So also tell patients to have good oral hygiene at least three times a day to prevent oral infections. Remember, steroids in the system actually um, decrease the immune response. So these patients are going to be at an increased risk for infection. And to wrap it up, there is a newer option for people with asthma and COPD, and it's a combination bronchodilator and an anti-inflammatory. It's an inhaler form, and it has a combination, Advair is the one that's really popular, it has a combination of corticosteroid and the long-acting um, bronchodilator. It comes in different combinations and dosages. Another popular one, Simbacore, if you've ever seen Simbacore in the Big Bad Wolf commercial on TV. Um, these are very popular. The therapeutic effects, side effects, adverse effects, precautions, and patient education are the same as for each drug used individually. Um, and one last thing I think we should probably just throw out there, I know I don't even believe it is on your list, is mucolytics. So most people with COPD um, take a drug daily to reduce those thick mucusy um, mucus. We want to we want to thin it out because that's going to allow the mucus to move easily out of the airways. The problem is when it sits in there too long and then there's an infection that grows. But this, these drugs are called mucolytics. So patients with asthma may use mucolytics when they have increased secretions or a problem. Probably the biggest ones you guys have heard of is mucinex. Okay. But all this does is it's a systemic mucolytic. They take it orally. Um, and then they work by breaking down the connections that hold the mucus protein and molecules together. This results in thinner, less sticky mucus, and then it's easier for them to do pulmonary toilet, cough and spit it out. All right. So mucolytics, that is the end of our respiratory medications. Which brings us really to the end of our podcast, except I really just wanted to do like a quick five minutes on cystic fibrosis. Let's talk about that. So cystic fibrosis, what is it? 
it is one of the most common genetic or inherited diseases in America, believe it or not. It's also one of the most serious. It mainly affects the lungs and the digestive system in the body, causes breathing problems, problem with digesting foods, and it is a chronic disease that has no cure. So what happens? Glands in the body that usually produce like thin, slippery secretions like sweat, mucus, you know, our tears, our saliva, our digestive juices, um, produce thick, sticky secretions. And these thick, sticky secretions plug up the ducts that should carry the secretions either outside of the body or into a hollow organ such as the lungs or the intestines. This affects the vital body functions such as breathing and or digestion. So most of the time CF is present at birth um, because parents carried a CF or cystic fibrosis gene and then their infant inherited a CF gene from each parent. Not every kid in the family will have necessarily CF. Other children could inherit like a gene from mom and not from dad and thus they are just a carrier of the, of the gene. We diagnose this usually based on symptoms, but we do have a couple of tests. We have genetic testing, and then we have a sweat chloride test. But um, the symptoms that we're gonna see in our, in our kids are gonna be persistent cough, wheezing. They're gonna get pneumonia again and again. They have a good appetite, but they're not gaining weight. Uh, significant failure to thrive in these patients. They're gonna have loose, um, steteria. They're like loose, foul-smelling bowel movements. They usually float on the top of the water. A salty taste to the skin. And many of the times, that's how the babies come in to their pediatrician saying, every time I kiss my baby, they're salty. So then we're going to do probably a sweat chloride test. It's simple. It's painless. Um, um, and it, the reason we test this is because CF causes a large amount of salt to be lost in the sweat. Measuring the amount of salt in the sweat can determine whether or not a person has CF. All right, so how are we gonna live with it? What are the new therapies? What's out there? While we know there's no cure for CF, there have been extensive um, it, advances in treatment that has extended life expectancy and quality of our patients that are living with the disease. And that can be anywhere um, that involves like a variety of things like medications, airway clearance techniques, antibiotics, a high calorie diet, mucus thinners, bronchodilators, pancreatic enzymes. And then we have a new generation of drugs called a CFTR modulator. And then they, in severe cases, um, patients may actually have a lung transplant. The cornerstone of treatment or a treatment plan is going to include the prevention of respiratory infections, the retention of lung function, because over time, lungs affect the function of the lungs. And then the use of dietary aids to compensate for that malabsorption of nutrients in the intestine, right? In the 1980s, people with CF had a median life expectancy of fewer than 20 years. Yeah. They, 
Um, they never made it into their 30s. And now we have people living well into their 40s and even longer. And it all has to do with self-care and lifestyle. Okay. So one of the first thing that has to be done is airway clearance techniques. So what does that mean? Airway clearance techniques or ACTs, ACTs are commonly used by people who have COPD, but they're just as effective in treating CF lung disease. The whole aim is to get that mucus, dislodge it from the lungs air sac so that they can cough it out. So a number of techniques can be used. There's huff coughing, right? Remember, as opposed to active coughing, um, which can wear a person out, huff coughing involves deep controlled inhalation so that enough air can get behind the mucus in the lungs to dislodge it. Chest percussions, also known as postural percussion and drainage. It can be formed by just having somebody clap on the back. We have uh, all kinds of little devices that we can actually put on the back now. We also have chest wall auscultation, which works to um, drain postural drainage. Uh, they are handheld, non-electronic devices, and they vibrate and loosen the mucus. Some of the devices now can actually be connected to a nebulizer, which is kind of cool because they're getting that auscultation as they're getting the delivery of their inhaled medications, and you can bet they're on bronchodilators. They also have high-frequency chest auscultation that involves like this vest, an inflatable vest. It's attached to an air pulse generator, and the machine like mechanically vibrates the chest at high frequencies to loosen and release mucus. So pretty neat. Exercise is something um, that CF patients can't afford to avoid because it helps them maintain their lung function over time and it reduces their risk of CF-related complications. Let's talk about the diet. Cystic fibrosis affects digestion by clogging the ducts in the pancreas. The pancreas produces digestive enzymes. And without the enzymes, the intestines are less able to break down and absorb nutrients from food. Coughing, fight infection. I mean, you're using up a lot of energy there. Takes their toll, burns calories, leaves the patient's feeling drained and fatigued. So to compensate for this loss and to maintain a healthy weight, we're going to have them on a high-fat, high-calorie diet. By doing so, we're going to help them uh, with their energy reserves. That's going to help better fight infection and stay healthy. All right? So another thing that we may need to do is actually um, add pancreatic enzymes to the diet to help with the male absorption. These pancreatic enzymes would be prescribed by the doctor, although you can buy them over the counter. These, because of the dosages, depending on the age and the weight and the actual disease process, are going to be prescribed by a physician. Um, children can actually have these sprinkled on their food. And again, this is going to help aid in the absorption of nutrients. Okay. Other prescription or drug therapies used to manage symptoms of the disease and slow the decline of organ damage are going to be broken into bronchodilators, mucolytics, antibiotics, and this new CFTR modulators. 
you know about bronchodilators, you know about mucolytics, and you know why they would be on antibiotics. But what is this CFT modifier? So the cystic fibrosis transmembrane receptor, that's that CTFR gene, produces the CFTR protein, which regulates the movement of water and salt in and out of the cells. And here is the patho um, problem in CF. If the CF, if the CTFR gene is mutated, as in the case with this disease, the protein it produces will be flawed, and that'll cause the mucus to thicken abnormally throughout the body. In recent years, there's been some exciting news out there with the scientists because they've developed a drug called the CFTR modulator. It's able to improve CFTR function in people with specific mutations. Now, there are over 2,000 mutations that cause CF. And around 80% of those cases are associated with a specific mutation known as the Delta F508. These drugs do not work for everyone, and they'll have to undergo genetic testing. But there are three CFTR modulators that are approved right now through the FDA. And there are many more currently in development. So this is pretty exciting stuff for our CF population. Other supportive therapies that our CF patients may have to um, utilize during an exacerbation could be O2 therapy. Supplemental guide, supplemental oxygen at night actually has been shown to improve sleep quality. Okay, also using low flow oxygen during exercise can increase the duration and intensity of workouts. In the end, that's only going to make the lungs stronger. We may at some point, because of the actual malabsorption, have to um, give tube feedings. We may do that through an NG tube, a, a G tube, a J tube. Um, just depends on the patient um, and you know what is going on with the actual absorption. And then, unfortunately, no matter how diligent our patients are with their treatment, there will come a day when their lungs won't be able to cope. Uh, they get damaged um, over a lifetime. It takes a toll. And at some point, there's probably going to be a pulmonologist in their life that recommends a lung transplant. Getting on the list early is always um, the best thing to do. And then the surgery, um, the actual um, prognosis after the surgery is excellent. A complete recovery takes about three months. The biggest thing is we're going to get these patients on organ rejection medications. That's going to be one of the most important things so that they don't reject their lungs. All right, all right, all right. That concludes our muddy concepts for week six, oxygenation. We talked about ventilation, oxygenation, compliance, asthma, COPD, there was a special appearance by cystic fibrosis, the medications to treat them. Stay tuned for more dialogue by a couple of your peers who are returning. Usher and Matt are going to be in the house and they're going to be talking about COPD, nursing management. So, I would say by Wednesday, that will be available. In the meantime, keep studying. And you know what they say, save one life, you're a hero. Save a hundred lives, 
your nurse. Over and out, this is Dr. Dean. See you soon.
This is Fenway's world, and we're living in it. Yep, I hear you.